The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? A few years ago, few in the West had heard of the Uyghur people. But recently, concerns over their welfare have been at the forefront of any China discussion. Listeners will already know by the wide-ranging detention scheme that China has implemented in Xinjiang, the western province of the country that's closer to Central Asia than to Beijing. It's believed that around a million Uyghur Muslims are incarcerated, one in ten of that ethnicity. The Chinese Communist Party calls this vocational training, portraying it as a counter-terrorism strategy that these Uyghurs, who have been what the CCP sees as being infected with extremist thought, are being reformed in their thought and are being retrained to do other things once they have graduated from the camps, while critics in the West have likened it to genocide and the eradicating of Uyghur culture and their religion. But the region is shrouded in opacity, forcing reporters to rely on satellite imagery and anecdotal accounts to piece together exactly what is going on. There have been reports of forced sterilization, forced labour and torture. Much work has been done on that front as to what we do and don't know is happening in Xinjiang. And on this episode, we won't be going into the what is happening in Xinjiang as much as the why it's happening. This episode will be all about who the Uyghur people are, China's historic relationship with its ethnic minorities, and what the ruling party hopes to get out of this. In other words, why is this all happening? I'm joined by Professor James Millwood, a renowned historian of the region and the Professor of Intersocietal History at Georgetown University. Jim, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. To start with, I wondered if you could paint a picture of the ethnic breakdown of China growing up as a part of the majority population, the Han Chinese, in Nanjing, in, to the east of the country. I learned about ethnic minorities in my textbooks, but I didn't really meet any because almost everyone around me were Han. So how diverse or not diverse is China? Yeah, well, officially, China is diverse to the extent that there are 56 ethnic groups, you know, as defined by the state. And that's a very kind of top-down way of talking about it and, and rather odd for someone from Europe, say, or the United States, you know, where, where sometimes we'll go to visit China and they'll say, oh, how many ethnic groups do you have, right, in your country? And, and that just shows there's a different way of thinking about it. There's a kind of politicization of the, of the categories. But even so, that shows that there's a lot of diversity, recognized diversity. And of course, you know, one of those groups, the largest, is this officially defined group called the Han Chinese. And then there are you know, various others that include Uyghurs and Tibetans and Zhuang and, and Chinese Muslims and, and you know, many, many, many others. But I think it's, it's important for people to recognize, or it's very often misunderstood or we don't see, that in fact, the category of Han itself is very diverse. Right. I mean, there are multiple. There really are different languages: Shanghainese, Cantonese, mm. Fujianese, or you know, Min. Right, as you know, right, which are mutually unintelligible or nearly so. 
certainly Cantonese is. So China is a Europe, and I think that's a really good way to, to put it and, and to think about it. Obviously, it's a Europe that is under a politically unified system and a single and a single party, and it has one the various Chinese languages are, are, are written with one script and with one kind of written form, kind of like Arabic is actually, right, across the Arabic world, or maybe like Latin was in Europe before the 18th century as a formal language. Anyway, that's a broad way of putting it, but I think we recognize how diverse China is. And, and that's, of course, a great strength of China. And, and, and one of the very interesting aspects of China's ethnic policies since 1949, that is under the, the People's Republic of China, has been to celebrate that diversity you know, through this kind of top-down recognition of different groups, but also through recognition of what are the cultural features of each of these. But it's, it's interesting to contrast that, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, in the context of you know Black Lives Matter and this American retrospection on our own history with with race and ethnic difference, it's interesting to contrast China's approach in the 1950s to what was going on, say, in the United States with you know with Jim Crow and lots of xenophobia and concern about immigration and so on and so forth. So, at least on paper, in in its first decades, the PRC had a really quite enlightened approach to what we would call today multiculturalism or, you know, to, to diversity as reflects the real diversity of, of China. Mm. And I just want to elaborate a little bit on those categories, which you've already called political. And it certainly strikes me as political, almost Foucauldian in the sense that if you categorize something, you can control what what it means. You can literally define identities. I would, for example, identify myself as Han, but as you say, that label may not mean much at all. So, has the Chinese Communist Party, since its days governing the country, always seen the political implications of China's ethnic minorities? Yes, it has. And even before the Communist Party came to power, it was concerned about this, as was the Guomindang or the Nationalist Party before that. And, and the reasons for this are really because the Chinese nation today, or the, you know, the republics of China, were built upon what was left over after the Qing Empire fell apart. And the Qing was an empire, and it had peoples in Central Asia, and it had brought Taiwan under rule of Beijing or, or Nanjing. And one of the reasons for the diversity that I just described is really because of this imperial past. So like the Soviet Union, when the Chinese Communist Party came to power, they had to deal with this legacy of an imperial background. And then also, with being a socialist party... And, and having that kind of socialist internationalism as part of their ideological DNA, how do you rule an empire without looking like an imperialist, right? And, and very much their whole raison d'etre was being anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist. And yet there they are governing an old empire and, and very much wanting to still have that territory mm. be part of China. And so they had to come up with a way to do that that wasn't simply the Han people taking control over everyone else. So then how do you define China so that it can include all of these very obviously non-Chinese people? Or, or how do you create a new state, a nation that is a multinational nation? And so they did that by using just that kind of terminology, mm. you know, 多民族国家, a multiple minzu nation, using this term, a very labile 
Chinese term minzu, which can be translated as nation, it can be translated as ethnic group, it can be translated as political solidarity category, it has all sorts of different kinds of senses. And so they very consciously created and, and, and really built into the People's Republic of China in its you know, founding document, it's in its constitution and in its legal system, this notion of ethnic identity as, as a fundamental part of what it was. And I'm sure, you know, growing up, I don't know if you still have your Chinese ID, but our friends and, and relatives in China all have an ID card, which has an ethnic identity on it. Yes. Right. And so, th and that is a fundamental political category through which a lot of things are channeled, resources are channeled, and your, your life can really be shaped by that in many ways. But Jim, I wanted to get you from your expert opinion. Why do we define the Han Chinese as almost the you know, Chinese proper. I mean, when we talk about China's history, the Qing themselves were Manchurians and they governed China for hundreds of years. Then before then you had the Yuan dynasty where they were, China was governed by the Mongolians. So for vast lengths of China's history, China was not governed by the Han Chinese. So where does this idea that almost that the others are ethnic minorities and that the Han Chinese are Chinese proper come from? Well, that's a very long question and, you know, sort of gets into Chinese identity. I mean, the very quick answer is, you know, when the Mongols took over China as part of a broader empire, and then ultimately the bit that was China kind of broke away from the, or, or was, you know, uh, separated away from the rest of the empire, they defined their people in different terms. Han was a term they used for northern Chinese. And it was later on in the Ming and then particularly in the Qing, when they, again, the, the Qing was a Manchu dynasty. And they, you know, they came in from what's now the northeast of China. They had Mongols. They had ultimately, you know, Tibetans and Central Asians and others in there. They needed a word for who are these Chinese people. So they adopted the word Han and applied it to all of those folks in the former Ming Empire. So it was, it, it's, it's an imperial imposition, really, to use that term. But also it tells us how th there was in, you know, in modern times a need to kind of sort this out because... Mm the sort of requirements of nationalism, you know, and, and being a nation state in the international community of nation states required there to be this, you know, clarity that, that fit into categories that Western countries were bringing to China, right? And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too hard to kind of establish that identity because there was that sense of Han, Han people within the Qing Empire, you know, when the British came in, in the 1840s and or even before that when, you know, Portuguese and Spanish and, and others were coming in. So there was definitely a sense of, of community and, and, of, and of a cultural legacy, but there wasn't a clear word for that. And so what's interesting is this notion of China, one could really argue that it's developed as part of an international discourse, really from early modern through modern times, with as much you know, contribution in Chinese language from Chinese thinkers and, and politicians and, and philosophers, as from European and, and Western practice, and not only Western, you know, Indian and, and Central Asian as well. And we're getting, you know, into sort of quite recondite kind of historical questions here. But, but this question of how we talk about China is really very important. And how Chinese talk about themselves and conceptualize themselves is actually critical to what's happening to the Uyghurs mm. and, and to a certain extent Tibetans right now. Because I think what we've seen in the last few years under Xi Jinping is an attempt to shift yet again the way that Chinese 
or the Chinese Communist Party conceptualizes who the Chinese are. And the idea that, that China was a, a, a complex entity of 56 different Minzu doesn't seem to be acceptable to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party anymore. And they're looking for something clearer. And we can talk about this in a few minutes, but one other word which we should talk about is this word, Zhonghua. This is yet another word for China that's not entirely cultural, but it's a kind of political cultural term, which has become much more important in recent ideological discussions as Xi Jinping tries to build his, his China dream and to roll up all of the people who don't quite look Chinese enough into a more homogeneous looking Chinese population. Well, Jim, let, let's talk about the CCP's approach to these ethnic minorities. We've talked about the categorization of them. I remember growing up that my, you know, my mum used to complain to me that the ethnic minorities in China get additional points on their gaka, on their secondary school examinations, which gets them into universities. And that seems to me a form of positive discrimination. And they were never also subject to the one-child policy that the Han Chinese had been subjected to from 1980 onwards. So, Clearly, there's been a massive policy shift from a Beijing government which wanted to bring them in almost through these positive discrimination bribery methods to what is happening now. Can you talk a little bit about what 20th century CCP policy to these ethnic minorities were like? Right. So this is something your, your mother's not alone in bringing that up. It's been a source of great resentment. And this is nothing, saying nothing bad about your mother. Those same kinds of resentments are common in any society that has positive discrimination policies or affirmative action, as we call it in the United States. And it's always seemed like, you know, those people are getting some sort of special perks, you know, from the state. The reasons for the Chinese Communist Party implementing, just speaking particularly about easier access or a slightly lower bar in theory to entrance to university. The reasons we're doing that, you can see them as actually political and very practical on the part of the state because they needed to have highly educated members of these minority groups in order to govern in minority areas, right? Precisely to avoid the colonialist appearance that I mentioned before. And so you need to bring in people from these different groups. And and because many of the minorities, by no means all, some of the groups in China are, you know, urban and, and spread all, all along, all around the eastern parts of China, and, and others actually have higher average educational levels of attainment than even the Han do. But, for, you know, mostly when people are concerned about that, they're thinking about Uyghurs, they're thinking about, about Tibetans. And these are people who come from poorer places, less developed places, their access to education has been poorer all along as it has been for decades. They're starting from a different place. So, you know, the idea of, of trying to bring these people up to an educational level is not, of a certain educational level, is not in of itself a bad one. Let me quickly kind of lay out, besides simply positive discrimination for university, some of the other features of what is often called the first generation ethnic policies in China. Because that kind of positive discrimination for university entrance exams was just one feature, but much more important was providing, I would say, sort of celebration of different cultures. And this meant, you know, through through the arts and the, you know, the song and dance, which of course we're all very familiar with, but also publishing in that language, 
right? Resources go into having newspapers and having books and so on published in, in Uyghur, in Kazakh, in Tibetan. An educational track in those other languages, all the way from kindergarten through university in the case of Uyghur and Tibetan. In particular, politically, there were, in theory, supposed to be certain proportions of minority cadres in the government and in the party, right? So there were, and, and of course, on the map, there are autonomous regions, again, so-called autonomous regions for the, the Uyghur region of Xinjiang, for Tibet, and a couple of others as well. So it's a broad spectrum of, of political, cultural, educational policies which were in place, all of which now have been challenged, in particular in Xinjiang, but also in some other places as well. So, Jim, let's talk a little bit about how that policy changed um, so drastically. One minute, the Chinese Communist Party is co-opting these ethnic minorities through positive discrimination, and the next, it is putting them into re-education camps. Now, to hear Beijing talk about it, it's all about terrorism and countering extremism. And indeed, in state propaganda, a lot of effort is made to compare this counter-extremism strategy to other countries' counter-extremism fights, to the world war on terror, to portray this Uyghur separatism as an international terrorist threat. And they point to the few violent terrorist attacks that happened in China in 2014, and they were incredibly shocking, happened within the space of a few months. A number of terrorist attacks that killed hundreds of Han Chinese people. I remember visiting China after 2014 was never the same again. There were now airport-style scanners, even in underground stations, because security worries were so heightened. So can you talk a little bit about whether or not that is the thing that changed the Uyghur policy for the CCP? There were four horrific acts there, which most outside observers would agree fit most definitions of terrorism. In other words, they're attacks on civilians for some kind of political purpose. Besides that, in the last 10 years or so, there's been quite a lot of unrest of various kinds. Some of it violent, a lot of it involving confrontations between police and Uyghurs, sometimes in house-to-house searches. Some of it involving almost sort of small rural uprisings where groups of farmers will march on the local police station or the family planning office with some kinds of concern. So all of that is called terrorism in official PRC propaganda. And some of it fits what, what outside observers would, would call terrorism, but not all of it. But, but that lumping it all together has, of course, confused our understanding of what's going on. And I think it's, it's confused Chinese policymakers' own understanding of what's going on. Because there is quite a lot of unrest, not necessarily violent, but some of it violent, all over China of various kinds, right? From, from knifings in kindergarten to demonstrations or even you know, factory takeovers or village takeovers when local officials are corrupt, when they have taken away people's land to sell to developers, when pension funds have gone missing, a lot of that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that China is a horribly unstable or corrupt place particularly, but what I'm saying is that that kind of base-level social unrest, which in a way is part of the authoritarian system, because that's the way in which people send a signal to Beijing. That's how you get through your local official and send a signal, hey, there's a problem here, and then the party can come in and fix it. A lot of that kind of unrest, which happens in the rest of China, is dealt with through this kind of escape valve, this kind of you know, pressure release. But all of that, is called terrorism 
is called separatism and extremism in Xinjiang. And so that, that pressure release has not, been, has not been there. And so I say all that because what hasn't happened in, in China itself is a clear distinction between different types of unrest or dissent for different purposes. It's all called terrorist. It's all assumed to be separatist. And it's all assumed to be religiously motivated. And in fact, it just, it isn't. But do you think that at least a significant proportion of those things happening in Xinjiang are religiously or culturally motivated in the sense that the, of course, I hear what you're saying about attacks happening in Beijing, not dubbed terrorism, because they're committed by Han people. But if it's happening in Xinjiang, it could be the fact that it's happening because of Uyghur identity backlash against this idea of sinicization or because of belief in jihadism. And I'm not saying that all of them are or even most of them are, but do you think that there's a real difference in nature of these attacks when they're done by Han Chinese and when they're done by Uyghur Muslims? I would say for the four attacks that we're talking about, so one was knifings in in Kunming, actually not in the Xinjiang region, but in southwestern China, a vehicular attack in Tiananmen Square, where a man with his wife and his mother-in-law, oddly enough, drove into you know a crowd in Tiananmen Square, and a couple, one kind of botched suicide bombing at the Urumqi railway station, and then a unfortunately not botched but you know, very violent attack on an Urumqi market involving explosives and, and two SUVs. So those are four very you know horrific incidents, and it seems from the information that were given by Chinese authorities. They do seem to have been, we could call them jihadi. You know, they sort of, they fit that template. They do seem to have had that religious or religio-political motivation. But for the wide variety of other things, it's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the time the Uyghurs are, these are Uyghur farmers in a conflict with Uyghur police in a local area, right? And so, okay, maybe they're fighting against the state. And, and certainly, I think there has been a, a vicious circle of of repression, resistance, repression, resistance, and, it, and it's a chicken and egg problem, you know, as China has cracked down more and more. But, you know, for example, if a woman is wearing a veil, and more women have taken up, you know, the veil over the last couple of decades in Xinjiang than before, one can argue why that is. Is it because they become more religious? Is it because their husbands want them to do it? Is it because they're trying to follow global fashion? global Islamic fashion among Muslims, right? It's it's not necessarily religion driving it. It can be interest in doing what people in Turkey are doing, or right? But for whatever those reasons, a woman's wearing a veil, and then the state has decided first that they want to discourage wearing a veil, and then that they want to illegalize it. And so then the woman is still wearing a veil, and a policeman actively unveils her in the street, right? Or she's at a checkpoint, and you know she's forced to take off her veil. And a fight breaks out, something like that. This is the kind of thing that's happened you know, many times. Is that religious? Is that political? Is that because of state policies? Is that because of people's religious feeling? At a certain point, it becomes impossible to disentangle those, right? Because it's a question of how the state is interpreting personal behavior and it may or may not be interpreting it correctly. I mean, the other piece of this is separatism or ethno-nationalism is unrest or violence related to a Uyghur desire to have an independent state. Well, that's often said, and there are Uyghurs in diaspora 
who will talk about East Turkestan and say they want to establish East Turkestan. And there's a, there's a East Turkestan flag, right? And that's been a stream of diasporic politics and even, be, well, since 1949. And before that, it was actually the Guamandang government called the region East Turkestan officially. We don't need to get into sort of all the history, but it, it, it's not a term that was demonized before 1949. It was actually used by a Chinese Republican government. So in any case, there are, there are people who talk about that. But there are also many Uyghurs in diaspora, and the mainline, the mainstream Uyghur organizations do not officially call for a state. You know, do some want independence? Probably they might, they'd love that idea, but that's not the official position, right? So separatism is not the official position of all of the diasporic organizations. Is it what people in Xinjiang want? We really don't know. And it's become, it used to be a journalistic, and not just journalistic, it used to be academics and, and journalists would routinely talk about terrorist activity, separatist movement in Xinjiang, ongoing for years, a smoldering powder keg, you know, all that kind of language. Lately, we've stopped using terrorism as a blanket description of what's going on, and I think that's good. But if you ask yourself, do we know why such and such an act happened, Right. Of violence. Was it, you can't necessarily say it was for religious motivations. You can't necessarily say it was for political, you know, trying to establish a state. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. We have no access to these people, to their minds. So the problem is we really have, we don't really know. And, and I think that a very serious problem in China within its own government system is that the leaders don't really know either, right? If you're sitting in Beijing, something happens in Hotan, the Hotan County of Southern Xinjiang, how do you know about it? You know about it because of what your party officials and local officials tell you happened. And, and for the last 20 years, certainly since 9-11, if not before, those local officials are going to say, oh, some terrorists attacked the family planning office, or some terrorists were off in the desert praying together, and then they attacked the police who, went, who chased them into the desert to stop them from praying, right? So there's a real information problem and and that leads to i think in many cases false diagnosis of what's of what's going on and therefore a false prescription and that of course brings us to the camps and and surveillance and forced labor and everything else just staying on that information gap for a minute, Jim, I, f I first came across you in your 2004 book that you contributed to Xinjiang, China's Muslim borderland. And that was a book for which you and your other colleagues, your other co-authors were denied visas to China for many years. And are you, are you still unable to get into China now because of co-authoring that book? So it was always more of a gray list than a, than a black list, but I couldn't simply get a visa the way a normal person does. I have to go through contacts in the embassy. And that's still the case. I mean, right now, <laughs> I couldn't go if I wanted to because of COVID issues and so on. So it's always an on-again, off-again sort of thing. But yes, it, it, it created a visa problem. And that strikes me, and obviously this is me coming from a Western perspective, as part of the problem of the situation around Xinjiang is that the CCP is not letting independent journalists, academics into the region and punishes others by not letting them into China on an on-again, off-again basis, which means that, you know, there is no way or there is very little way of knowing what's actually going on there. And I don't know, maybe what is actually going on there is so awful that you can't possibly do it any other way. But it seems to me that this top-down governance, this idea of the CCP always presenting the best image of itself, is actually 
counterproductive in this instance. I completely agree. It didn't used to be, you know, even maybe five, six years ago, it wasn't as bad as it is now. One could have frank discussions. I could have frank discussions with Chinese colleagues. I would get delegations from academic institutions, you know, in Beijing, closely connected to Zhongnanhai and 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 to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, they're they're their research arms and so on. And they would send people and, you know, when they came to Washington, D.C., they'd talk to me and they would talk to other scholars and they'd go to the think tanks. So there used to be an openness for this information. And I think right now everything has gotten so tight, everything has gotten so sensitive that, you know, the scholars themselves are not able to to move around. And not only because of Chinese acts, but frankly because of the Trump administration, it's actually much harder, and of course, COVID. It's harder for Chinese scholars, anyone affiliated with with government institutions and with the party. It's harder for them even to come, you know, to talk to us in the United States. And so that's, of course, just as stupid in the part of the Trump administration as as it is when if the CCP does it. So information is 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 really critical, and and having these kinds of, of flows. And I think you know, as as someone who is even though I'm highly critical of policies in China with regard to, to Xinjiang in particular, I, I nonetheless think that you know, we need to maintain civil and constructive relations. And when I say we, I mean everyone in the world, but in particular, you know, the United States. And to do that, you need to remain open and, and sort of have these conversations. But you also need to recognize that, you know, maybe you'll get a flat denial some of the criticisms I say, if I criticize these policies and so on, you know, maybe you'll get that in the formal meeting. But someone will be taking notes, and your articulation of all the problems that I see with those policies have been recorded, and then they're reported. And they may be reported with a rebuttal, but they are reported, right? And so it didn't used to be, and I hope now at certain levels, you know, the party didn't used to be totally you know, know nothing and close-minded about this kind of thing. It was, you know, interested in get, gathering this information and knowing what people are thinking. And it somehow gets into the system one way or another. And Jim, let's talk a little bit about those problems with the policy. Apart from the glaring human rights elephant in the room, clearly what is happening is incredibly morally shocking. But just from Be- Beijing's perspective, if you were a smart policymaker sitting in Zhongnanhai in Beijing where decisions are made, why would you think that this is working? You are grabbing so many ordinary people. And even if you do think they are extremists, they're clearly not extremists to the extent of having actually committed a crime. Otherwise, they'd be in prison. You're grabbing these people and you are you're shoving propaganda down their throats, to say the least. Why would that do anything other than to radicalize them even more against the ruling party? I think there are many people, you know, for whom that's obvious. I think that in an increasingly authoritarian system, however, it's impossible for for scholars, for local officials, for people in the party to say that these policies which have been mandated from on high are wrong. And there's a very good example of this in some of the papers that were released, or that haven't been released, but that were reported on by the New York Times. Mm, leaked. And, and they were leaked and then reported on. There's a story about a, an official in southern Xinjiang who was told to you know, arrest everyone who should be arrested, right? And, and in other words, to, to put them all through this educational transformation system. And he initially rounded up 20,000 people and then let a lot of them go. And what was clear from the papers was that when this was discovered by his superiors, 
he was dragged out and he was very, very publicly criticized. And these leaked papers were not, in fact, secret papers. These were reports that circulated very broadly within the party. They weren't published in China, but they, you know, and the point was, you know, to, to kill the monkey to scare the chickens, saying that mm. if you're a local official, you better follow these policies when we tell you to intern 11 or 15 percent of the population, that's what you do. And that message was very, very clear, right? So this is where the information problem comes in. This is where authoritarian systems end up, you know, they may be able to do some things efficiently, but when they make mistakes, they make them very efficiently as well. And they're perpetrated very, very broadly. But so, you know, do people think this will really work? I think on one level, people think, well, they, they exaggerate the terrorism problem, as I've been saying, by seeing everything as terrorism, if a Uyghur is involved, right? And therefore, when having exaggerated the problem, then they think that really drastic measures must be necessary. And the idea of, of educational transformation is not a new one. There have been similar kinds of things applied to Falun Gong adherents, applied to prostitutes, drug users. It's interesting how you know, adherents of a religion are seen to be in the same category as drug addicts, prostitutes, and, well, Falun Gong as a religion or as the state sees it as a cult. But in any case, you know, similar kind of approach. And it, of course, has Confucian echoes and Maoist echoes of thought reform, right? So it's not an entirely new idea, and therefore, somewhat in keeping with Xi Jinping's neo-Maoist approach, to China. So I think initially that could have been you know, part of the reason why people would buy into this. And then it takes on institutional momentum in addition to the state on top from on high saying, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to create these centers, or as we call them, concentration camps. You're going to move people through them, dangerous categories of people. How are you going to identify that dangerous category of people? Through algorithms, from all of this data that you've gathered, including facial recognition and bio data and irises and DNA and whether they traveled. And, and isn't it amazing? We now have the AI capability mm. to track people in real time and to crunch this data in real time. And the system will then ping whether someone's safe to go into a bank or not, or whether someone needs to be interned or not. Exactly the same technologies that we're seeing used for the QR codes of people, you know, that, that have actually helped to, as, as far as we know, suppress COVID-19 in China. Those same kind of technologies have been developed in Xinjiang. And there's, of course, great affection for them. There's technophilia in the very technocratic political system in China. And as those, those technologies become more effective, as they have, then that brings in another interest group, namely all of the companies and corporations who are contracted to provide everything from the security systems in the prisons to the AI platforms and everything else, right? And so it becomes a vast public-private confluence of interest. An industrial complex. An industrial complex with lots and lots of people involved and lots of interests involved, all in the name of this securitization and internment and supposedly dealing with counterterrorism, but also dealing with poverty alleviation, which is the other piece of it, of it too. And if I can add one more thing on this, one other big part of, of sort of how this could have happened, you know, look, looking over a longer, a longer period of time, is this idea of development and the state taking its sense of responsibility for development and a belief that, well, 
the reason that there's separatism, the reason that there's dissent among the Uyghurs is that they're they're poor and they haven't been properly recipients of, or, or, you know, they haven't, they haven't developed, they have these sort of issues. And, and that actually comes out of a Marxist way of thinking, which, you know, in that identity, particularly national identity, is a kind of pseudo-consciousness, right? And the only real consciousness comes from one's class identity and from economic, the economic base, not the ideological superstructure. And so it had really been both, both policy and also the philosophy of the Communist Party, that economic development and modernization will cause ethno-national differences to disappear. That was a point of Leninist doctrine. In 2014, Xi Jinping announced that, well, that's not true anymore. In addition to material change, material policies, we need to have spiritual or psychological, jingshen, right? Wujur and jingshen mm-hmm. is a term he used. And so that marks a real shift ideologically right at the eve of the implementation of this new set of much more draconian policies and i would say much more a much more assimilative approach towards ethnicity in general and james speaking of ethnicities let's talk about the han majority and their role that they could be playing in this situation clearly internationally or at least in the west What's happening to the Uyghurs is completely shocking. It's one of the first things anyone really mentions when talking about China these days. But in China itself, that is completely different. It couldn't be further, I would say, from people's minds. A, because of a lack of information, because the state media is not exactly reporting on it. And B, those people who do know about what's going on by the state narrative that these are vocational training camps. Not because they're bad people or callous people, but only because to them, Uyghurs are, you know, this distant ethnicity in a place that they probably will never even visit in their lives. Um, So why should they go out of their way to find out more about what's happening to Uyghur people or even just distrust what is the majority narrative that they come across normally? So what do you think is a way to get through to the majority Han people to so that there's this less of a gap between what's seen as happening in Xinjiang within China and what is seen as happening outside of China? I've been thinking a lot about this and, and how to kind of message, right? And, you know, sort of finger wagging and, and, you know, even kind of talking about concentration camps, you know, doesn't necessarily get through. People are saying, yes, but what about terrorism? And, you know, you Americans... You Westerners, you know, you haven't solved the problem. We are. But I think there are a lot of parallels to similar, well, a lot of parallels to issues of of diversity, issues of racism, colonialism that are still lingering in the West. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement was actually very interesting in this regard because it's been singled out again and again, along with the for example, Western bungling of the COVID response. But as the two main things, why, I'll just say America for now, you know, why America has messed up, right? And why American institutions really aren't up to the task and Chinese institutions are much, are much better. But if you look at, you know, some of the arguments that, you know, if you compare, it, it, it's very easy to describe the situation of a Uyghur, say, in, in m- many parts of China, in ways that are similar to how, you know, what, what black people in America have been pointing out about the injustice of their treatment. You know, police single you out, profiling, obviously discrimination, structural of all kinds, and, and, and things like this. I'll just give one example I heard just the other day. Apparently, the, the Three Gorges Dam, that's in Hubei province, right? 
And they've been welcoming tourists from all over China to Hubei recently as kind of a thank you for all the help that Wuhan got you know, last year and as a way, I guess, to pick up tourism and so on. So a colleague of mine was traveling there and you know, went to the Three Gorges Dam you know, in a taxi cab. And the cab was saying, yes, we're welcoming people from all over the country. And, you know, the Three Gorges Dam was built by all the people of China. They all put money in it. So it's open. Anyone can visit for free, except for people from Xinjiang. Xinjiang ran Bunang Lai, so Xinjiang people can't come because I've heard, the taxi driver said, I've heard that they cause trouble or they cause violence and chaos. So that sounds like, you know, that's the rule. Xinjiang people are singled out. And this happens again and again. There's been you know, stories about buying tickets and so on. So we have a system of structural state, tolerated if not direct state, but often it is direct state discrimination. And it's, it's you know, similar to what has happened to ethnic minorities in other places at other times and even, you know, continuing right now. And the, the kind of, I think, globalization of the language of diversity, equality, and inclusion and, and its opposites I'm seeing, you know, more and more of that language in Chinese, in discussions, in criticisms of the United States coming back. But it, it's translated, it's becoming, these are becoming terms of art, part of the discourse there. And I, I don't think this should be a case of, ah, well, you know, we Westerners are teaching the Chinese how to think about diversity. It shouldn't be that. But that through introspection and, and transparent discussion of these problems everywhere, we can globally reach a common way of thinking about it and recognizing of these problems of you know, inclusion and, and diversity wherever they are and, and think about how to approach them. And think about also you know, the, the mistakes that have been made and the massive mistakes. Internment, right? Americans of Japanese. But even before that, in, in other parts of the world, the idea of you have a, a minority, they're dangerous simply because of their ethnic identity. You know, what does a state do? It wants to round them up. And it wants to do special things to them and, and, and take away their, their rights. And this has happened in Cuba in the late 19th century after the Sugar Rebellion. It's happened in South Africa. It's happened in the United States with Native Americans in many points. They were essentially you know, sort of rounded up and, and confined in, in often in internment type situations. So, you know, it's not only the concentration camps of Nazi Germany we're looking at. We're looking at, at, at a repeat of a really very old nation-state approach to to minorities within a national environment, right? And, you know, the, the idea of taking children away from their families to raise them in a different language, or the idea that minorities need to be assimilated to some kind of majoritarian, you know, homogeneous ideal. The melting pot idea has been invoked many times recently in China as a goal for what ethnic policies should be, mm. as opposed to ha celebrating f the differences. And of course, that's been you know, thrown out and, and strongly criticized in the United States for some time. So this is not a, a, a Chinese problem only. It really is something that we've seen you know, globally over the last 500 years in one way or another in any part of the world. And for certain, for certain reasons, I think they're kind of reinventing the wheel in a bad way in Xinjiang right now. But I think you know, looking at these problems where they've happened elsewhere might be a way which, you know, well-meaning, smart, you know, good people like your mother and, and, and many, many others can kind of understand and, and have a different way of looking at ethnic difference within China as, as well. Mm. 
I wonder how you see the Hui Muslims in China. And for listeners, this is the other major Muslim group in China. There are at least 11 million Hui people. They integrate more, they spread out more across the country so that you can't be pinned down to one province like Xinjiang. But they're not having the same experience of the Chinese state as the Uyghur Muslims, or are they? And if not, why has the state targeted the Uyghur Muslims? I guess what I'm asking is, is the problem with Islam or is the problem with something else? So for, for Uyghurs, they have the issue of being a, a distinct corner of the country which was before the 18th century not part of you know the empire right and so there's the sense of separatism is always a fear there which is not as you said true of, of the hui hui people generally speak the chinese dialect or chinese language of the place where they live and so they don't stand out from surrounding han people the same way and you know some are observant muslims some are less observant generally Hui people avoid eating pork. That's probably the most distinctive feature that many Han people will always talk about and notice because eating pork is a, is a big part of Chinese cuisine. In any case, they have until relatively recently not been subject to the same kinds of policies. But what we have seen in the last few years, though, is that the state really attack on Islam or, or the sort of ratcheting up of state concerns about Islam have come to the way as well, in particular in concerns about studying Arabic. It's now becoming, which used to be very popular among among Hui, you know, as a way of being able to recite the Quran yourself. And that's become more and more problematic. The use of Arabic script, even to simply write halal on the front window of a store, which of course I know in, in, in Britain is very, is very common. There's a place in Wilson Green, near where my wife grew up, it's, it says, New Jersey chicken, halal, <laughs> on the window, which I always have loved, you know, as that's glo- globalization in a storefront. But the actual, the Arabic writing of halal has, has been erased, and even the, the Chinese version, Qingzheng, has been erased from that. And there's been an attack on domes as an architectural feature, mm. because someone is argued that a dome is Arabic and there's been a anti-Arabization movement as well as a as part of the sinicization of religion campaign under Xi Jinping. Uh, domes aren't Arabic at all. They come from Byzantium or and, and I think the immediate reference for domes in in Chinese Islamic architecture is probably Central Asia or even South Asia. It has nothing to do with Arabs at all. But in any case, so domes have been taken down and there's been a couple of mosques that were threatened because of that. And so I think, you know, this is why it is much more acute for Uyghurs in in the Uyghur region in Xinjiang. But the the overall thrust is spreading to other peoples and other parts of China as well. And it and has to do with this new shift towards an assimilative, homogenizing approach to ethnicity as opposed to the PRC's earlier multicultural policies. In that approach of homogenization what does it look like? Is it that everyone looks like Han and has Han cultural aspects? Or is it that Han have to change as well? What is President Xi's ultimate vision for China? So really from 1949 and codified in the 1980s, there was this idea that there are these 56, and here I'll use the Chinese word minzu, because to call it ethnic group or political category or nation, it's not quite right. It's all of those things together. But there were these 56 minzu, 
And they're all, you know, individual and have their own costumes and song and dance and everything else. And then on top of that was a kind of super minzu, a national ethnic category, which is called by this term Zhonghua, which means Chinese both culturally and also somewhat politically. And the old argument was that this national identity arose from the individual 56 identities and was not necessarily in conflict with them at all. But it was kind of a capstone on top of the foundational pillars of the 56. And that was the way they talked about it before. Increasingly in the last few years, though, this, this pyramid is being flipped upside down. And we're, we're seeing in, in official proclamations that way of talking about the Zhonghua Minzu almost as a primordial racial category. And I'll give just one example. Xi Jinping in the third Xinjiang work conference last September had a line in his speech that said, all of the Minzu of Xinjiang are related to the bloodlines of the Zhonghua Minzu. So he used this word bloodlines, which is not entirely saying that they're offshoots of that, but it, it's introducing a, a racialization to this discussion. And it's also projecting back into time this idea of a Zhonghua identity as a kind of super, super China identity, putting it back into ancient times, as opposed to it being the culmination of political processes in the modern era. And so there's much more of this kind of essentializing of Chinese identity and historicizing of it falsely, but trying to argue that there is this elemental Chineseness and Uyghurs should just recognize that they're Chinese and not descendants of the Turks. Tibetans should recognize that they've been China since ancient times and so on and so forth. And that's the new kind of approach. And uh, the problem with it is what this Zhonghua identity looks like when it's described and you know, in practice what, what the ideal is, it's pretty much like Han and not all Han. It's pretty much like Northern Han who speak Mandarin, you know, Putonghua. And they're, of course, very, very faithful followers of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party. And they celebrate you know, Lunar New Year, not Ramadan, and so on. So, so the, the kind of super China identity is pretty much a idealization of Hanness, of good communist Hanness. And that is what everyone is being required to look like. And the danger of that approach is that it means you're, that any cultural deviation from that Hanness, be it speaking a different language or having a, you know, another religion, that cultural deviation then becomes a political threat. And that's precisely what has happened to, to Islam and to speaking Uyghur. It is, it is considered not patriotic to speak Uyghur, right? That's what happened. So cultural difference has now been politicized as non-patriotic. Professor James Millwood, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. <laughs>